0: Welcome to episode 190 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed
0: Podcasters. Hey brother. Hey brother, how are you today? I'm well.
1: I'm well. It's it's the Lord's Day. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. This is
0: the day I just want to sing. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with that. I like that, yeah. actually. That's what we're going to start this episode. Yeah,
1: we're we're, we're we're plugging along with digital gatherings for the time being. We're getting close to this point in New Hampshire where we feel like we can start to, to re-gather in person safely. Uh, so that's encouraging. And uh, yeah, it's just a good day. It was nice out. It's
0: not too hot, not too cold can't complain. Oh, it sounds like your life is just right. Just right. Yeah. Like Goldilocks <laughs> style. That's where I was going with that. <laughs> yeah. How about you? How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm with you. I mean, we're going to get into this, I think a little bit in this episode. It's a an interesting and wild world that we live in. And part of that is the transition that's happening and everything else that's going on. And so it's, I think, More than anything, I actually think that God is giving us a unique sense of clarity in these times. I think he always does this for his people, but especially right now, some would say that things are more scattered than they've ever been before. And I think yet at the same time, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, there is a unique kind of clarity in what's happening and hopefully a purifying of our vision and our our priorities. So we'll we'll get, we will get into all that, but first we got to do some affirmations and denials. Let's stick to the script. So would you mind kicking us off? Sure thing. I am affirming the 39 articles of religion, which
1: is, I guess, formally speaking is part of the doctrinal standards of the Anglican church. Uh, Some people might be a little bit surprised to hear me say that, um, but I would, I would uh, put forward that most of the people who'd be surprised with the way that I said that, uh, actually, are because they haven't read the thirty-nine articles. So Fair for enough. the most part, the thirty-nine articles are a excellent. Uh, statement of good old-fashioned English reform theology. So uh, there's some stuff in there about like church-state relations towards the end there that are a little bit squirrely. Um, But the the downfall in the Anglican Communion is not in uh, a failure in the 39 articles. It's in a failure of the Anglican Communion to actually hold to the 39 articles. So if you read the 39 articles, though, they are just, most of them are just rock solid. Like they're, they're, a good exposition of justification by faith alone. They're a good exposition of predestination and scriptural fidelity and authority. Uh, There's some weird stuff where like there's a doctrinal allegiance to certain non-biblical creeds that uh, isn't exclusively a problem with the Anglican articles, um, but actually is one of the reasons I favor the Westminster standards over the three forms of unity is because there's no formal uh, subscription in those uh, subordinate standards to other subordinate standards. But yeah, pick them up, read them. They're they're good stuff. Um, and it's good to know because it is, you know, as both you and I, uh, you as a Baptist and I as a Presbyterian, uh, we both draw our heritage spiritually through the Anglican Church uh, right. in, in the Reformation. So it's part of our shared uh, tradition if you go back far enough. So it's good to be aware of. But yeah, I was reading this morning as, as part of my study, and I was just really impressed by what's there. So I'm affirming the 39 articles of religion.
0: And I actually really like the turn of phrase in the 39 articles. I don't know. There's something about the turn of phrase for me that's, it's, I want, dare I say, like poetic a little bit. It's just beautiful. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. It's just beautiful. And actually, I like the way you said that because I think the nice thing about going back and finding those shared roots and then revisiting them by way of reading something like that is... You know, we're used to hearing the same type of things over and over again or using the same type of words in a similar type of order. And when you read something like that, that you're maybe not as normally exposed to, it's saying something that you're familiar with, but in maybe a slightly different way or with a different turn of phrase. And so it kind of causes your brain to move off the autopilot. And to consider, again, maybe even if it's just a nuance or some of the wordplay or just a single expression, that can be so valuable. So I actually, I actually really like, and I affirm the way in which you kind of incorporate those <laughs> into something like your devotional reading. I think that's yeah. really valuable. I think it's a, that's a great practice. Yeah, this is
1: a little plug, although we're not uh, sponsored by uh, Crossway or ESV. Uh, the ESV uh, Bible that has the creeds and confessions included in the end, um, it's really nice because although I would say there are uh, a fair number of problems with the Augsburg Confession, obviously, because I'm not a Lutheran, I don't, I disagree with certain parts of it. Um, and then I would even have some disagreements with the 39 articles uh, and then obviously some disagreements with the London Baptist Confession. It's nice to have those all included in that one volume because you can have it in front of you. You know, at church, maybe maybe your pastor references something, and you want to take a look at what the confession says. It's nice to have it all there, and then it's it's presented in kind of a chronological order. So I'm just, I just every Sunday I take the creed section and I read 15 minutes uh, after I finish my devotions, and it's just kind of a nice way to round out a little bit uh, what you're studying and what you're reading. And it's as much as I love reading modern systematic theologies or or systematic theologies as a whole. Um, those are private opinions of private individuals usually. Right. Uh, a creedal or a confessional statement that is uh, a document that is, most of the time, produced by a committee of of ecclesiastical men, um, but at least adopted by an ecclesiastical body, as opposed to like Michael Horton's systematic theology, which is just Michael Horton's opinion. Um, right. It's nice to add those in there and kind of round things out.
0: Yes, sometimes I get this sense. Maybe this is just me. So you let me know that in in our lives as we're trying to understand get a god to the best of our ability as he gives us insight through the holy spirit and by way of the scriptures which of course is the ultimate text for understanding that that it's a bit like standing or walking or maybe even running or flipping sometimes on a balance beam. And what I like about the creeds, the confessions, they keep me on that beam. They they kind of keep me centered and in yeah. balance as opposed to having a tendency to wobble around a little bit. So even just like going through them again, like rehearsing that stuff by just reading it, picking it up casually with almost no objective except just to read through a couple lines can be so helpful because it's like you're getting this, we keep talking about this, but it, it comes up all the time. Muscle memory, like theological yep. muscle memory, and those are, are more valuable, I would say, than some of the other systematic stuff. One, because you know, the good test of any great writing is brevity. And so there's a lot of great brevity in there. But the second thing is the way in which they've been vetted and the way in which they've been constructed. The, their genesis was in kind of the, in the way in which you speak in such a way where that kind of, I don't want to say community hermeneutic, but this idea of that it was formed in a way that it was a group. And yeah. I think that that is like really helpful because by and large, the Western culture is one of individualism. And we can fall into this trap where we just so easily take what is some kind of theological celebrity and import that as kind of like the the final decision or the final expression of something. Yeah. And we're not used to, I think, thinking about the difference between ex- exactly what you just said. So I think that's like a helpful word for people.
1: Yeah. True that. What about you? What are you affirming today?
0: Well, let's keep with the medium of, I guess we're talking about like books, music, stuff like that. I'm just going to stay in the lane that you already put us into. So I'm just going to go with affirming some music today. This is not a new album, but it is a one. It is a one.
1: It is an it's like, album. It's not a new like, one, but it is an album.
0: It is an album. There's like some Super Mario talk I had going on there. So, <laughs> this is not, not brand new. It's an new. album. <laughs> it came out last year and it's uh, called Fear by the Citizens. And I've recommended The Citizens a couple of times. And again, this is just like just great music. I, I don't even know what you'd call this, maybe like alternative, but it's like some of the songs, they're just really creative. Some of them got a little bit of a groove. They're a little bit dancey. There's no yelling in this album, much to my chagrin, but it is a really beautiful album. So I would definitely recommend, and I'm affirming with the album Fear by The Citizens. It's just like good... This is like good summertime music. You know, like you need that, that album for like grilling outside or hanging out yeah. with friends you want to have it in the background. This would be that album. It's Something it's really a little poppy. Yeah, I'd say I, that's probably a better way to say it. It's probably like alternative pop, but I don't want to... It is hipster rock let me say it that way because like they're all definitely hipsters like i'm pretty sure in one of the music videos for the first album there's one of the dude has a handlebar mustache that's definitely waxed up i think the bassist does and i was like oh yes and then the the lead singer actually these guys came out of mars hill the lead singer has uh, a pretty good looking beard with like thick rim glasses which is apparently my style so I, i definitely have an affinity with that
1: yeah, I pretty much assume that any music that you recommend is either screaming music or hipster something or other music. <laughs> that's fair. Cuz that's that's, fair. that's a pretty fair assumption.
0: I, is the is like the hipster thing like the geek thing now is it just like kind of like so m- such a mainstay in mainstream in culture that it's lost all of its specificity?
1: I mean, I think probably that that like it doesn't really have a lot of definition, but you're like you're kind of like more classic, classic hipster, like articulation, like the glasses, you know, like I've seen you twist that that mustache up and <laughs> handlebar it out. The craft beer, like you're
0: wearing a flannel right now. That's true. I'm it's, wearing a flannel.
1: You're a pretty classic hipster. But like <sighs> hipster has evolved past where you are. Yes. So.
0: Yes. It's yeah. It's been appropriated. And, you know, just like making anything, like for instance, craft beer, sometimes you take one element of it and you just like blow it up and it becomes yeah. extreme and magnified and caricaturized. So trying, trying to stay with that original vibe, but this, <laughs> this kind of music, I guess is right on par. So people should definitely look this up. It's worth listening to. So yeah. let's do then a little bit of denial action. Let's get after something. How about uh, you kick us off?
1: Yeah. So my denial is really straightforward. There's no agenda. There's no... Theological point. I'm just denying <laughs> that I have too many books to read and not what? enough time to read it.
0: What? Oh, okay, okay, I'm not, okay. Yeah, I'm not denying Sorry. that I have too many Oof. books. That's, yeah, I just that, don't, don't be there. crazy
1: here. I'm denying more, I guess, more I'm denying that I don't have enough time to read all the books. And yeah, I, I have that. a stack of books on my desk that's like, this is my reading list. And it's now it's become two stacks of books that are probably about a foot high. And pretty soon it's going to be like a third stack of books because it gets to a certain point point they start to fall over. Right. So just too, too many books to read and not enough, not enough time to read them in.
0: So here's something depressing. I did this and I I won't even throw out numbers because I don't want to put this in anybody's mind. This is almost, and by almost, I mean, not at all, but like the second commandment violation thing. (laughs) I don't even want to put this in anybody's mind, but I got to thinking a couple months ago about my reading, about how long it takes me to read. And of course, everybody reads a different pace. So I took my pace out. I took what I in like Typical, like kind of vague actuarial science terms, how much longer I think that I'll live. And I started calculating out the number of books that I thought I could reasonably read in my lifetime, presuming that the Lord tarries and that I have the health and the wherewithal to do that. When I got that number, it wasn't necessarily that it was like depressingly low, yeah. but then it started to put everything into context. And now like when I see a book, you know, those books, like you're kind of on the margin about like, oh yeah, I'd read that or, you know, like, Oh, I, c- I could probably fit that in. Um, it changed everything. And then I yeah. was like, Oh my gosh. Now. I So then I that g- felt like all this pressure to like, I, and I wish I'd never done the math. So I totally understand what you're saying.
1: Yeah. You know, I, um, I had, uh, there's several points in my life where somebody has reframed, something in a particular way that made me think about it differently, like in a substantial way. So like, for example, when I was in, uh, when I went to my actual college, like I went to community college, community college is real college, but it wasn't like serious college for me. When I went to my four year program, uh, at Bethel university, I skipped class like the fourth, the fourth or fifth session. I just, just totally blew off class. And my professor called me in and said, uh, here's how much money you paid to not come to class. Like, like broke it all down for me per credit per hour. And I was like, I never skipped class again. Like I just didn't. Cause it was some ridiculous amount of money. And the same way, uh, my dad, when I was younger, uh, when I first got a job, he said, you know, you really, when you want to buy something, you really need to think about it in terms of, uh how many hours you have to work to do it he said because that's that's basically how money works is you're converting labor hours into products and and money is kind of just the medium we use to make that conversion that may not right. be right like from an economic theory but i think it's pretty close <laughs> and and it that's like really true and i think about that like books too like how much how many hours do i have to work in order to purchase this book and then how many hours of my life is it going to take for me to finish this book and right. then like, that kind of like tells me like, eh, I don't really feel like 20 hours for this book is going to be worth it or whatever yep. it might be.
0: Exactly. Cause there's, yeah. cause it's a finite resource, right? Yeah. So you're trying to determine is the, I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it. Cause it just came to mind. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Wow. Um, man, we use that a lot in the finance world. I have no idea why. I can't tell you how many sales presentations I've been on where somebody said, is the juice worth the squeeze? And I want to say that that phrase isn't worth the squeeze. So just stop it. That Um,
1: phrase, the juice was not worth the squeeze of that phrase.
0: Yeah, it was not worth it at all. So um, I will say, totally affirm your father. That's a, a wonderful approach. And I will say, I'm so glad to hear the thing about the cost because. Uh, when I teach any kind of college or economics or finance, on the first day, that's what I do. We go through and we, I calculate the the price. And if they're borrowing money, we calculate the crude interest that they'll have to earn on yeah. whatever the price is per hour. I'm always clear that that's not what I actually get paid because it's usually yeah. super high but to teach. But um, it, it's all about – I mean, framing is such a powerful thing, isn't it? And mm-hmm. actually – To make this spiritual, can I do this for a second? Are you okay with this? Let's do it. Yeah. This is what the creeds and confessions do for us, I think, actually, is they keep framing stuff in so that when we process information, we understand it because we have a rubric again. So it's, it's all framing, I think. That, that is really what the value, value of them is, is like to be able then to interact with people in the world in which you have the proper frame as opposed to just having no boundaries or very enigmatic or ill-defined boundaries. Yeah. It's just such a beautiful thing to have clarity. I mean, you and I have talked on the side about how many times we've been in churches or with groups or as part of organizations where there's been a lack of clarity on basic things. And what happens is sometimes that lack of clarity is at first perceived as a great strength because there's a sense that it's, while they're of course concerned with ousting heresy, that they're feeling like they're being more inclusive or they're, they're trying to be more understanding with different perspectives. But then when there is a major issue of concern that needs to be addressed, then all of a sudden, because there's a lack of specificity and clarity on the issue, what happens is it causes a great amount of stress and grief. And yeah. so actually, I think what they have in the end to do is then to define the position because they weren't ready to embrace a position or to come against something from the outside.
1: Yeah. And then they're forced this is where it becomes even more problematic, then they're forced to define uh whatever it is they're defining reactively instead of yes. constructively. And so yes. then not that that's bad, like all of the all of the major like creedal statements in the church and most confessions are are reactive in a certain sense but it's always it's always easier to address and define a problem or define something sort of in the absence of a controversy because then you get like more of a precise clean definition instead of like a responsive one but yeah i agree with you
0: yeah. It's one of those things that I've, I've seen this happen time and time again. So it's it's really wonderful, again, to be properly framed in. Like That's a great gift of God to bring clarity and boundaries. That is God's love toward us, that he yeah. would allow us to have that kind of knowledge so that we might move forward with confidence in difficult situations. Yeah. Well, what are you denying? Okay. So this is also kind of just a fun denial, and that is I'm denying against trying to explain to somebody famous, like I'm going to put that in air quotes, famous, like reformed sermons and snippets. So
1: (laughs) that is so hyper specific. Only on a reformed (laughs) podcast do you get something that ultra. I'm denying. Trying to explain why Paul Washer's shocking youth message is actually <laughs> problematic, but like so specific. I love it. I love everything so, about so it. So
0: here's the great thing. This is, we're too much alike. That's what I was going to talk about. I'm sure but, it was. But here, well, there was two things I was going to talk about, but the reason why the, the whole genesis of this thing, like what brought it all up was that my wife and I had sat down and we were starting to watch American gospel. And first of all, I was presently, it's presently surprised. Thing. Also present, it happened and pleasantly surprised uh, by that uh, film, and and it includes friend of the podcast Nate Pickowitz is in yep. there doing his thing, and so there's you know there's a lots of great people that are have talking heads in that, and the fun game that I was playing with my wife was you know oftentimes as they were showing like scenery or clips or whatever somebody would speak start talking before they actually showed them, and you can guess a lot of the voices because they're coming to us, so yeah. because of that there were at least a couple of people that came to mind that I was trying to explain to my wife who they were. One of them was Paul Washer. So <laughs> Paul Washer was talking. I was like, Oh man, Paul Washer is, he's the man. Like he, but he's got the, I was like, he's got this famous sermon, which surely you've seen. And she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. So try explaining to somebody who's never seen that and then yeah. like quoting it what it's about, what it means, why it's a little bit weird. And it was just totally lost. I realized the more I started to try to explain it, like where I'm like, I'm talking about you. She was like, he he was talking about who? And I was like, no, he said, I'm talking about you. She's like, well, who was he talking about? It's like, he's talking about them. (laughs) He's talking
1: about you. Apparently he's talking about you. (laughs) I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you.
0: (laughs) So there was, there was that. And then that then led me on to like, well, I'm sure I said to her, like, you must be familiar with like these other like famous little quips or like, you know, you've probably seen these memes, right? So I was like, for instance, the R.C. Sproul, what's wrong with you people? So then I was trying (laughs) to explain that quote and that she was like, I don't understand what was wrong. And I was like, oh, my. Total depravity (laughs) is what was wrong. (laughs) But, But part of it in her defense was like. It's just that's just a, a unique thing to explain to somebody. Then try to like imitate the environment yeah. and the context in which it took place. So I should have just stopped because now I think she has a really strange view of Paul Washer, which may be entirely inaccurate, and she has no yeah. like probably volition to go and look up that clip. So I probably should just like text it to her and say here's You should
1: just be like, the only thing you need to know about Paul Washer is he really doesn't like Britney Spears. <laughs> I, I <laughs> he really, really, sunk. really doesn't like Britney Spears. And
0: I couldn't remember the entire quote up to that point, I knew yeah. that the Britney Spears was in there and it was something about like the world is more concerned with acting like Britney Spears and yeah. following Jesus, you know, something like that, but it would just was not coming off as, as eloquent. So it's, Plus it's,
1: it's, it's, it's funny. You mentioned that because I had a funny little interaction with our Scott Clark on uh, Twitter this last week. So uh, there was this um, article that was like the gospel coalition put out, um, something. And it was basically like, it, w- it was like this basically his Lordship salvation sort of repackaged. And, you know, that was like his point in linking it as like this, this kind of like problematic theology is everywhere. And I saw it and I thought I would be kind of funny. And I said, I don't know why you're clapping. The gospel coalition is talking about you. <laughs> and, and, you know, like, this is one of those like Twitter things where I'm like, oh, this is, this is so clever. Because like I'm making this connection between the theology that's in this article and Paul Washer and the Lordship contract, like I'm making all these connections, and Scott writes back on Twitter, and he says, "What what is what's clapping mean?" I don't get it. So I had to I had to say like I had to explain like uh, it's kind of like a reference to the to the Paul Washer sermon where he says I'm clapping. Like I was showing I had to like explain the whole thing, and he's like, "Ah, yes, I remember that sermon now." it was like he totally like didn't get the (laughs) didn't get the reference and i was like oh so yeah Uh, i i resonate with the trying to explain interesting crazy things sermon things to people who don't so this is
0: this is great right so what you're basically saying is we had the same experience except yours was our scott clark (laughs) i was (laughs) with my wife (laughs)
1: Yeah, I guess maybe. But yours also is not – well, I suppose it's public now for all to see. But my my uh, sort of face plant on that was public for all of R. Scott Clark's followers to see, which are myriad.
0: Again, can we just talk about the fact we acknowledge that that is like, a, once again, for me, the hardest name to say. I don't know. That combination of it's consonants tough. and syllables. R. Scott Clark is so hard. It's tough. It's It's a tough – Tough thing. It, almost
1: always, if you're talking fast, not just you, but like a lot of people, it comes out as R. scart Clark.
0: Yeah, it, exactly. There's just
1: something linguistically there.
0: Yeah, it's it's a weird tongue twister, and I don't know why it should be very simple. Does anybody know what the R stands for? Richard, I don't
1: know, it's probably Robert.
0: Robert. I don't
1: know. Maybe it's Ricky. like like Reginald, something really epic. <laughs> Reginald. You know, I learned today or yesterday, <laughs> I learned that Chevy Chase's real first name is Cornelius. <laughs> We've been watching, Ashley and I have been watching through uh, Community, just kind of as a fun show to, to sort of binge on. And there are so many weird parallels between Chevy Chase as a person and Chevy Chase's character on the show. Like, Chevy Chase actually came from a wealthy family that made all their money selling, like, toiletries and toilet paper. And Chevy Chase's character is wealthy because his father owns, like, a wet wipes company. It's very strange. But, yeah, his name is, like, Cornelius C chase and i was like that's not at all what i would have thought his name was
0: <laughs> i did not know that at all that's Cornelius a bit like chase. learning that like captain crunch's first name is horatio magellan
1: yeah yeah <laughs> it is a bit like that i i'm gonna uh i'm gonna say that from now on we 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 articulate that our scott clark's first name actually is reginald <laughs> reginald, so, I like reginald scott
0: clark can we call him reggie
1: no, it's got to be Reginald, <laughs> Reginald. It's probably Richard or Robert. Usually when people drop their first name down to an initial, it's because like they have the, their dad's got the same name. And so they got called Clark when they were a kid because they didn't want to. It was easier. At like, it's probably something like that.
0: Yeah. But it's a, a high end move when you don't just drop it, but you keep the initial in oh, there. Yeah, and that's sure. how people know you. I mean, that's, that's high. That's top shelf right there in terms of like naming yeah. convention.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, um, I'm going to, whenever I publish someday, I'm going to go with my initials. You just automatically sound smarter when you're like TL Arsenal instead of Tony Arsenal.
0: Wait, but how many people, so, I mean, people must know this about you. Like your, your actual, your full name. How many people call you by like your first full name? Like nobody. In, I had your family,
1: one, I had one professor in college or in, in seminary That even after, you know, like the first day of class, they call you by your full name because that's what they have on their attendance sheet. But even after that, she still insisted on calling me Antonio. But no, yeah, nobody calls me Antonio that I I know of.
0: Does that make you sad?
1: No, not at all. I don't really, (laughs) I I don't dislike the name. I mean, it's my name, but I've always been Tony. So it's a little bit weird when people call me Antonio. The one thing that does drive me nuts is when people call me Anthony, because that's not my name. Ooh, how does that happen? Because they assume that Tony is short for Anthony.
0: Ah, so that does bother me. Listen, you can't make that leap. It's true. But people love to do that with names. We've talked about this already, so we don't need to rehash that. But people yeah. love, I. there's one thing I know. It is that for some reason you meet a stranger and they see your name and they want to like immediately make a jump either to like lengthen it or shorten it. Even if you've like introduced yourself in a particular way. Yeah. You know what I mean? I find yeah. that so strange.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's true. I'm I'm gonna set this as a policy for my life now. Though if I don't know if someone uses an initial for their name, like R, I'm yeah. going to assume that their name is the most like classic Highfalutin name it could be, like Reginald. Yeah, I like that. Or I Cornelius. Like,
0: what if his name is Reginald? Like first, he should be going by that for sure, yeah. no doubt. But man, I would laugh so hard if his actual's name first name was Reginald. I'm
1: gonna feel pretty dumb if it is. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not gonna lie. Reginald Scott. But that actually sounds really good together. I I have to think that if I was an author and a professor, uh, I would go by Reginald if my name was Reginald. But I don't know. Maybe his dad's name is Reginald and they didn't want to get confused. I don't
0: know. Either way. (laughs) I just like sorry. I just lost it because I really enjoy the idea of two generations having that same name. That they yeah. were like, this worked out so well. This name was so awesome. Let's do this whole thing again. It's true, Reginald. Reginald. But is not. He's not a junior, so obviously it's not the same name. Maybe but he is, and
1: he just doesn't go by it. I don't know. <laughs>
0: So confusing. Well, at this point, clearly, we somehow need to get him on the podcast, and because the world wants to know the answers to these questions, at least I do.
1: Yeah. At this point, you know, we have a claim to fame right now that we have spent more time. I, I suppose I have because it was a clip of me. I've spent more time on our on Reginald Scott, Cl- Scott Clark's <laughs> on Reginald Scott Clark's <laughs> podcast than he has on ours. So that's true. I'm just saying. I mean, I'm not saying. I'm just saying.
0: Oh, that's true. Well, on, on that note, since we've we've probably (laughs) Reginald that pretty hard at this point. What note is that? (laughs) It's, I don't, I don't even know. It's like a,
1: like an F sharp flat.
0: It's, it's, yeah, it is. It's without a key. It's definitely something that's, uh, augmented. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, that was like a little bit of music humor that probably only four people got anyway. So here's, here's the thing. I mean, (laughs) uh, The topic that I want to talk to you about uh, today is something that I think is like connected, of course, to like what's going on in our world. But, you know, the world right now is just is a crazy place. Uh, I think it's always crazy, of course. It's just the degree to which we see that it's clear as well that we see the world as like a place that is hurting. And that is desperate for real change and significant movement and significant advancement. But of course, that really only comes through Jesus Christ. And so like, there's, I've seen so many people on so many venues and platforms saying so many different things. And in some respect, I think because of like our status in life, where we are, our stat, you know, our stratum, what we do for a living, our voices are probably not particularly well suited or expert in providing any kind of new information. And yet at the same time, what I think is helpful is there's some things that we can talk about. And the thing that I've been really falling back on is something actually that you and I talked about that came out of a conversation. And this is wild. Like, I think well, almost three, four years ago about the election. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about that and it, it's come to me. I've been processing this idea in conjunction with a book that i is my one of my favorite pieces of fiction. I know this is like a little bit nerdy, but I, I want to read a quote from it because this is really I had to go and find this, but this is often how i think about situations like this and about what it means to love others and to love people. And so i think one of the most beautiful examples of my own internal struggle with this and really as a christian is trying to follow jesus is something that fyodor dostoevsky wrote about in the brothers karamazov. And there's this powerful scene that unfolds bef- between the monk in the book, this father, the elder who lives in a monastery and serves as a mentor to one of the main characters and a lady who approaches him for counsel. And she confesses to him that she fears she is unable to actively love because her motives are often wrong. And the elder replies to her concern by relaying a similar confession that he heard many years ago, from a doctor who came to see him. And so I just want to read, it's a little bit lengthy, but I'm gonna read this quote because I think it is beautiful and challenging and strange and dark. And so here is how Dostoevsky phrases this. He says, I love mankind, he said, that is the doctor, but I'm amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular, that is individually separate persons. In my dreams, he said, I often went so far as to think passionately of serving mankind. And it may be would really have gone to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly necessary. And yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone, even for two days. This I know from experience. As soon as someone is there close to me, his personality oppresses my self-esteem and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. One, because he takes too long eating his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become the enemy of people the moment they touch me, he said. On the other hand, it has always happened that the more I hate people individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity as a whole. And the reason why I think this is coming to me is I think we have a lot of conversations about what it means to like express ideas and to move forward with agendas, but not a lot of conversation about what it means to love. And I think in particular, there is a type of thing that reformed Christians are particularly susceptible to, and that is the sense that the idea of love becomes greater than the action of love itself. And so that's, that's kind of why we wanted to start our conversation is just with everything that's going on and we talked about you know voting in a way of how can we love others through our voting how can we love others right now and i so deeply resonate with this idea that the idea of love itself the concept can seem so romantic almost and yet when it comes to actually finding a way in my own sphere of influence or life to affect this kind of love that is jesus shaped that i fall down so completely and that's when I realized that what I, I need is, of course, the love of the Savior to actually move me forward in a direction where it's practical and personal, as opposed to just ideological and vague.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, just just in case somebody is listening to this episode like f- four years from now and doesn't know what we're talking about, we say everything that's going on. We're recording this episode on June seventh of twenty twenty. So right now we have a pandemic. Uh, that is unprecedented in our lifetime. Uh, th- almost 300,000 people have died uh, globally. More than 300,000 people have died globally in the last, what are we at, eight months now. Um, we're in the middle of of the sort of the hottest racial tensions uh, that our country has probably seen in the last 20 years. Um, you know, like the, the riots in L.A. when Rodney King uh, beating happened uh, was probably the last hotspot of this caliber. Um, you know, we had stuff going on with Ferguson a few years ago and things like that. but we've, we've got like cities that are being are riding across the country. Um, and, and then on top of that, we're, we're coming into what will probably be the most contentious election cycle ever in history. right? Last time the last election cycle, which is when we were talking about voting was between uh, primarily between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and that was contentious. Uh, And now we're in the middle of all of this other stuff going on in the world, plus uh, another contentious election cycle. So that really is like the soil that this conversation is growing out of. And I think you're absolutely right. Like we can talk about the concept of loving your neighbor or loving your, loving your, uh, you know, loving mankind all we want, but unless we're able to actually like put that into, into some practical real context, which really almost requires you to think about specific people in your life, right? Right. Talking about like the the theoretical, how do I love my neighbor? Like there's value to that. It's important. But until you actually like have a person in mind that you either want to love better or haven't loved well, um, which those two things I guess are probably the same, but that's when it really starts to become difficult and i think that's i've never read that that novel but that's kind of what the quote is getting at as i understand it is like this doctor thinks about all the ways he wants to help mankind but and it was striking that he uses the example of a guy in, you know a guy he's he's with that has a cold that's blowing his nose as a doctor right, like exactly. the person he should have the most compassion on, on is the sick and yet he still gets frustrated and angry because it's it's annoying him and it's you know uh, it's oppressing him in some sense so i think this is a great topic for us to talk about and i think i think it's really you're right like you and i are probably not in the right position to speak much in in the current context not because we don't have anything to say or because by some virtue of our our economic status or our skin color or our uh, you know our our theological leaning that that what we have to say is not valuable. I think different perspectives have different value to bring. But just because right now in our world, like there's a lot of a lot of people saying a lot of things, and I'm not sure you and I have anything to contribute right. to spe- to the specific situations that hasn't been said a thousand other ways in a thousand better ways.
0: Right. And, and that's where I'm at. It, and it's funny you say it that way because I think, honestly, what I'm proposing, at least in some respects, is that for voices like your and mine, we can just honestly shut our mouths on, right. on certain things like that. Like that we, we need to actually stop so that other people can have the space so that their voice will be heard. But at the same time, not invalidating all of that, what can we do? And what I've been drawn back to is understanding what love requires. Because I think there's just so much rhetoric right now. Some of it's polemic too, about this sense of like what needs to happen. And yet again, it strikes me at the end of the day, that the only way things really change is through Jesus, but because God never saves the people merely for themselves, but also for his glory and for the change that is manifested in his glory, that he is the glorious one that can redeem all things. And he starts with people that in the same way, We need to be the people that are purveyors of love and like take that really seriously. So there's, of course, like I think people would acknowledge, well, there's a great difference between love and the sense of dreaming about it and love and action between the ideal of love and the display of it. And love and dreams is easy and requires nothing of us but just imagination. But active love is exacting. It's demanding that our imaginations be exercised and find expression. And where I think that the reform perspective is has like something unique to offer here is the fact that when we speak about a theology that is very well articulated, that in other words, God has given us logic of mind, but also logic in the scriptures, and that he set forth this line through the order of salutis to help us understand what it means to be saved, that that it's actually that very thing, which compels us to love in a way that is so much better and so much profound than any other metric, than any other type of worldview. So I'm not talking about the kind of like John Lennon, wouldn't it be nice imagine if there's no heaven? That actually to me seems insane because you're actually taking away every presupposition that would cause you to love in a way that is truly sacrificial. Like you're actually... Devoiding or sucking out all of the actual essence of love by trying to import this idea that somehow the this the Christian worldview is devoid of a kind of specific centered caring toward people and so yeah. I think it actually starts with the law. We've done a lot of talking about the law, but like for me, when Jesus and the New Testament writers summarize the law of God, you know, they're talking about basically love of God and love of neighbor. And it is, as I read the law, and this is what I'd be curious your perspective on, like I see in the law, even even just in Moses' articulation of it to the people, so much that's like an active love that I I think, I don't think they're hearing ideas, in other words, like I think Moses is like fleshing out actual, kind of like to what you just said, like actual relationship and interaction embedded in those principles. And so they're like immediately connected. It's not just ideas.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, one thing that I think is interesting. I'm, I'm more active on Facebook than you are. And one thing that I see a lot is the world co-opting this idea of loving your neighbor. Right. So you see all sorts of all sorts of people for whatever reason, some of it legit, some of it not legit. But for whatever reason, Christians have got this um, reputation in our world of not loving their neighbor, of, of kind of like ignoring the fact that Jesus said that. that. That's at least the perception that I think a lot of the world has. And so they they use this almost as like a thing to poke at Christians with, where they say like, well, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And so I wanted to read this quote from Bavink. It's funny because you you gave me this topic yesterday, but I didn't really do any prep, but I was reading this last <laughs> night just because it was in my reading. And in the very first chapter of Wonderful Works of God, um, Bavink is talking about like the highest, the, the chief end of man. He, he's not necessarily doing a commentary on the Westminster um, catechism, but he does follow some of those same lines of thinking. And he says here, he says, be that as it may, he's talking about the fact that there has been progress in society. Like the, the poor are less poor, the sick are less sick. Like there's been this progress that is part of the common grace of God. He says, be that as it may, this much is sure that if the life of service for humanity of love for the neighbor is not rooted in the law of God, it loses its force and its character. And then he goes on to say, indeed, the love for the neighbor can maintain itself only if on one hand it is based on and laid upon us by the law of God. And only if on the other hand, that same God grants us the desire to live uprightly according to his commandments. Now, this is not to say that a non-Christian cannot genuinely have goodwill towards their neighbor like we we just know that that's not the case the question has to be why is that not the case and and Bobbing, of course goes in and explains that this is sort of a like an after effect of the image of god that there is this sense of divinity that all people regardless of whether they know it or not are striving towards right it's just good old basic presuppositionalism there um but that it's it's absolutely the case that if we want to love our neighbors well first of all we have to know what it means to love our neighbor. It's not some ethereal, you know, general goodwill towards people thing. Like there is a general goodwill towards people that is required by the law, but the law itself gives us like actual flesh, not actual flesh, but like it actually gives us the constraints and the requirements and the instructions for how it is that we're to love our neighbor. It's not just a generalized love your neighbor. It's love your neighbor in this way, in in these precepts, in these commands, with these restrictions,
0: right? Yeah, that's the, and that's the thing that is so fascinating to me because we tend to think about it in a way that's a little bit more ephemeral. But love is like made visible by carrying out like severe demands required by it, and I, I think it is severe because or let me say it's severe for me because because it so pushes against my nature. And when I think about what it means to actually like make a difference by way of loving somebody else, in other words, like the sacrifice it takes for that difference to be made known, even if it's not acknowledged, is like, is it, is a real severe demand. And so this is yeah. why like I roundly push against this idea that Christianity is a crutch. And the reason why I say that is because Christianity is like exacting in its demands. Like, yeah. but. Where it has exacting demands, there is a full and overflowing grace from God, like the benevolent energy and purpose from God to help us meet that. The indicative and the imperative that Paul is is always bringing together in consummate unity. But it's not a crutch because, like, it demands this, and that's what the law is. Like the law is a harsh master. I'm going back through and reading Pilgrim's Progress again because because it's awesome book. That's all. Yeah, yeah, it's all. It have to be said, and. I'm just at that point again where it's almost a little bit hilarious cuz I'm now that I've read it a couple times where Pilgrim just gets beat up by this guy. And he's like, who is that guy? And he's like, that was Moses. <laughs> like he yeah. just came with the law and just beat the heck out of you. And he was kind of like, what was that all about? Because he's, he's talking to faithful. And he's like, what is that all about? And he's like, yeah, that's how the law is. Like that, it doesn't care. Like, cause he was like, I was on the ground. He was like kicking me still. And he's like, yeah, that's how the law is. <laughs> like, so it's, it is like totally exacting it's demanding. And there's of course, like a grace and a mercy that Christ brings on this other side of the cross. We've talked about this. And yet at the same time, it doesn't remove the fact that at the foundational level is still the law that now like we are saved in such a way now, of course, by the law, but for the law so that we might obey it because out of gratitude and love. And yet still like to me, it's like exacting like elsewhere in that book, the elder describes the action of love as a harsh and fearful thing. And I actually think that's a really good description that like yeah. real love is 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 like that. But it has to start, like, we're asking, well, how can we all make a difference? I really think the only difference is that kind of love. But of course, that kind of love can only be shown primarily person to person, and it only comes from Christ. But I really see it as really a severe demand. I, I don't know if, if you think I'm making, like, too much of that. No.
1: I mean, I think when when you think about what it means to love your neighbor, right? So, we go to the catechism we ask you know where is the moral law summarily comprehended and the answer of this is question 41 the answer is the moral law is summarily comprehended in the 10 commandments right so so all of god's moral requirements um are summarized in the 10 commandments and it says what is the summary of those 10 commandments and the answer is the sum of the 10 commandments is to love the lord our god with all our heart right that's the first table of the law 1 through 4 and then uh, to love our neighbors as ourself. So if we, if we as reformed Christians, and I, I would think Lutherans, uh, Baptists, you know, I mean like evangelical Baptists, uh, this is, this shouldn't be a, a controversial point. The law is not something we can actually achieve. Right? right. So, so if we believe that the summary of the law is to love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself, then what we're saying is loving, na- loving your neighbor as yourself is not something that's attainable by us. It's not right. something we can right. accomplish. It's it's not just a severe demand. It's an unmeetable demand. It's not something that can be done apart from the empowering and the blessing and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, because that is then Christ in us, operating through us to accomplish the, the law of the demand, right? So, so this, I don't remember where it is. I'll have to look it up, but the, the scripture talks about how the the fact of Christ in our life enables us to meet the law's demands. That's not to say that we're somehow empowered to, to in our own power, perfectly meet the law. What it actually is to say is that because of what Christ has done, because, because we are accepted in him, then all of our good works, uh, even though they're imperfect and are mixed with corruption and bad intentions, they're accepted by the Father on behalf of because of what Christ has done, for Christ's sake. And that applies to loving our neighbors too. So, you know, a non-Christian or someone who's operating apart from the spirit can do things for their neighbor that are good, civically righteous things, right? They're, they're right. things that are are good for society. They're good in the eyes of the, the society. Um, they may even line up with the things that the law prescribes, right? When, when I help someone um, or when, when a non-Christian finds somebody that's sick or injured and does something to help them, that lines up with the Sixth Commandment. It's, it's accomplishing the intended outcome of the Sixth Commandment in terms of the, the performance of that duty. But apart from the presence of Christ, that work is still t- tainted with corruptions, can never be accepted by the Father as truly good without Christ to mediate them.
0: Right, yeah, that's right on, and that, so that's some serious irony in a sense, right? Because the world, like you said, is making the claim, "Well, hey, Christians, you're supposed to love your neighbors. It doesn't seem like you're doing that particularly well." And now, right. in I would say, in fairness. They're sometimes making that case because they sense that Christian love is is not inclusive enough as they would like it to be. And yet at the same time, we're kind of saying here, like, yeah, we know we can love them as we ought to. Like the ethic that Jesus provides here is so severe and exacting as to require the work of the Holy Spirit to bring it to any kind of fruitful outcome. And so that, that I think is what has been impressed upon me is that, but we need to be the kind of people that don't consider love as the kind of thing that we can just passively accept or participate in. And and I think like going back to what we said in the beginning, and this might sound extreme and triggering, but I don't mean it to be, is I'm discovering maybe we need to think about, like really think about when we get up in the morning, when we're going through our daily work or when we need to make a plan, how are we loving people? So it's not just kind of like, well, if people come into my life or I need to, give somebody a ride or if I need to help somebody out, yeah, I'm going to do that thing. But are we making a plan in such a way that we're going to direct part of our energy and our time toward actually not just maybe doing things because maybe some of the most loving thing we can do is like sit down and dedicate prayer to somebody or call somebody up and just ask like, are you okay? Yeah. I just want to listen. I don't know, but I think that what we're longing for in times like this, when there is this kind of massive societal stress, there's all this well-intentioned and good ideas. But I think what frustrates everybody is the, the lack of fruition that comes out of it is not because people don't have enough energy or their own motivator passion enough. It's just because Jesus is absent. And so where are the Christians? Where are we going to be? Not we're trying to say the end goal here is like that post mill style. Like we're just gonna make the world a better place. But the goal is that we're going to actively participate in love. Like, man, I, I hate to quote like DC talk here, but I know that like your boys (laughs) with like Michael Tate, like he's, we're
1: we're good pals. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I know that you could just call him up. So this idea that like love is a verb sounds so cliche and corny, but when I took inventory of my own life, I often treat love like a noun or in terms of, of parts of speech, that's how I treat it often is like, it's something on the side. And like yeah I I love my wife uh, I also like love string cheese I also love good craft beer like even just the way in which we use it is is so I would say lame sometimes that I think the law if we're understanding the law properly cuz like we'll we'll get on you and I will get on top of we just spent two episodes almost 2 hours speaking about like the second commandment and how we want to be obedient to it not violate it. And yet we're talking about what is the precepts behind, or excuse me, like the spirit behind the precepts of the law, and that being predominantly love, an ethic of love, like a true ethic of love manifested in, in behavior that's that's like, that's clear, I don't yeah. know how else to say it. Uh, how quick are we to get after that, you know?
1: Yeah, and you know, the other thing that I think is an important um yeah. Maybe a little bit of a corrective for people. Love, love is not a voluntary thing. Like right. when I, when yes. I say that it's a volitional thing, it's something right. that you have to engage your will to do, but it's not something that as Christians, we can choose not to do. We, we talked about joy in, in kind of similar terms like joy is an imperative, like we're commanded to be joyful. And that, that feels paradoxical because we talk about joy. Like it's a spontaneous, fun, like fun thing that just kind of wells up inside of you. But like in reality, joy is often a choice. And like love is a similar kind of thing where it's a volitional act. It's a choice that we make, but it's something that we're required to do. And we know that we're required to do it because it's part of the law. So, so God doesn't just suggest that we love our neighbor as ourselves. He doesn't just suggest that we honor our fathers and mothers, that we don't steal, that we don't commit adultery, that we don't covet, that we don't murder. Like he doesn't; those aren't suggestions. Those are mandatory things that every Christian is required to do perfectly at all times. Like that—that's the—that's right. the, that's the that's exacting the demand that you're talking about. Is that it's not just like make sure you take every opportunity to show love for your neighbor, <laughs> right. right? Like, right. like make sure that you don't let an opportunity pass by the exacting demand is that you perfectly love your neighbor at all times to the fullest extent possible. Like that's a huge requirement. And, and this is where I think there's, this is where the shoe leather comes in, right? Is that we often spend our time kind of oblivious to the needs of people around us, right? Mm-hmm. We we don't think about it. It's out of sight, out of mind. And some of that is just a matter of reality. Like we can't be aware of every need at every time. And even if we were, we can't possibly meet every need at every time. But where I think the law comes in and the intention of the law is that we have to be going out of our way to be thinking about and seeking out opportunities to do that. And that's that's why I think this idea that it's the summary of the 10 commandments is important and where I think the reformed understanding of the 10 commandments is really vital is that the 10 commandments although they're phrased primarily in the negative telling you things you're not allowed to do, every negative has a converse positive. Right? right? So it's not just enough just let's just pick one, right? Well, let's let's talk about the 6th commandment just briefly because that's we've already had some conversations about it. Right. But question 69 What is forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment forbids taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. Right. But what's required in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. So it's not enough to just avoid things that tend towards the taking away of life. But we actually have to go out, we have to positively take steps and add intentionality to our life that promotes the flourishing of life. And now in our world, that could mean all sorts of things, right? That could be as simple, and there's going to be people that are all sorts of triggered over this. That could be as simple as putting on a friggin' mask, like put on a mask, like it's such a small, stupid, insignificant thing for you in, in almost every situation to, and I say this to myself, there are all sorts of times that I run down to the store or I stop to buy something on the way home and I, I just leave my mask sitting on the on the chair next to me because I've been wearing a mask all day at work and I don't want to wear it and my glasses are like, I make all these excuses, but it's such a tiny, insignificant, small thing you can do to, to preserve potentially the life of another, to to act in a way that furthers potential human flourishing, potential life flourishing. Like that's not an optional thing. Like according to the civic law, like it's not legal. It's not a legal declaration in our state that I have to wear a mask, right? The the governor has said, this is the best practice. This is what the CDC recommends. Please do it. But it's not, there's no law that says I have to wear a mask in public. Some states have more legal statements than that, but that's not what it is here. But should I wear it? Yes, I absolutely should. If it it doesn't do anything, if it isn't reducing infection possibilities at all, should I still do it? Yeah. You know why? Because it shows my neighbors that I care about them. It shows my neighbors that I care about their life, that I care about their health, and that I'm willing to do this thing. Even if if it isn't significant, I'm willing to make this sacrifice to preserve and promote their life, right? Now, if somewhere down the road, it, it was shown that that actually hurts life, that that actually is acting against the sixth commandment, then we need to act accordingly. But we we often pass up those little opportunities to fully love our neighbor as ourselves in a way that we really shouldn't. And it's because we're just not thinking about it.
0: And I think that's a great example because I think that Christian joy is actually tightly coupled with that kind of obedience and that kind of giving up of freedom, because there's here's another word that's like, maybe we talked about this before, just stop me if we have. We uh, another word I think is really in vogue right now or a combination of words is this idea of like servant leadership. Yeah. And it sounds really good on paper, but when I see that, all I think of is the only environment in which I think it was o- ever completely embodied to the full, and that was in Jesus, which is a full giving up of rights. Right. And so like our, I think there's this modern cultural dogma that believes that the truly happy person is the one who's unencumbered, who's free to pursue his dreams, follow his heart, and to live out his deepest desires, like throwing off any person or entity that would restrain that pursuit. We know it's like the Disney mentality, follow your heart, yeah. but to truly love we have to willingly limit our freedoms. Again, that's the exacting piece. Love does not insist on its own way, but it considers the needs of others. So what I like about your example is, I think when Jesus says things like, listen, if somebody compels you to carry a pack a mile, go two miles. And I have to believe my my own interpretation of that is that the second mile is filled with maybe a little bit more joy because it comes with full volition. Because it is at that point, the full laying down of the rights of giving up of any kind of sense that this is how I ought to be treated. And in that volition that is connected with a gratitude of love toward Jesus Christ and service toward his agenda, that changes everything. So I love that example because even the smallest thing of saying, you know what, I'm putting on the mask. I'm doing that because I love God and I want to love others. And I am choosing, to, I'm laying down my rights in a, in, a, in a very small way, but in a way that is no less profound with respect to honoring the example that Jesus Christ gave us. That's a really beautiful thing. And I think there's yeah. a lot of joy in that. And, but we have to get to the point where we kind of can see that connection between those two things. And that's where I think the reform perspective is so unique. It, it provides us a way of kind of filtering down, appointing us in that direction, as opposed to just saying, well, it's just another annoyance or like you're being a super good person. We're not saying that at all. Right. <laughs> like you're not gaining anything. There's no meritorious, you know, c- credit that's coming to you by way of putting on the mask. However, there is a very real way in which you are taking on the responsibility of bearing joy and honoring the sixth commandment and honoring God by doing that. And it also points out that, especially right now, I think what we need to be focused on is now what we see online, you know, like the Facebook can give us this false sense that we have this omnipotence because we see everything going on everywhere. And therefore, we either become so concerned with the general idea that we forget to put it into practice in our own lives, in the our own group with who are pe- people that are hurting, or we just get so wrapped up in it that we become so overwhelmed that we don't do anything in our own little world. And so I think that this reminds us that the kind of love we're talking about is really like it's nugget love. Like it's like small little things done in a way that are connected to the joy of serving God and honoring others.
1: Yeah. And you know, the other thing that is important to remember is just as a general rule of thumb, and I'm certainly not perfect at this. I get annoyed by stuff all the time. But if, if your first thought when somebody, when something comes up is, oh man, this is such an inconvenience for me, versus how can I best love my neighbor regardless of the sacrifice I have to make, right? That, that's where I think we err as Christians is, you know, when, when I think, um, Oh man, I don't want to wear this mask. I'm just going to leave it on the seat because it—it's only a second. I—I I right. know that I'm not sick. You make all these excuses, but really, all it boils down to is I'm frustrated by the inconvenience of this. Um, that is not a Christian principle, right? To to think about what is the inconvenience that's that's coming my way—that's not a Christian principle. And like it wouldn't be sacrifice if it was easy and and convenient. Like that's right. that's the that's the difficulty and the complexity of the Christian life is that the things that give us joy, the, the things that we uh, we engage in joyfully, are precisely the things that the wisdom of the world tells us should be annoyances. Right. Right. When I when I um and I hope this doesn't sound like like bragging because I'm not intending it to be that way, but when a person uh, when a person thinks about giving to the church financially are they thinking oh man i just i really wish that i had this money to to use for something else maybe it's for my own personal maybe it's for a good thing i wish i had this money to be able to pay off my school loans a little faster or i wish i had this money so that i could um, i could buy nicer clothes for my kids like those aren't bad things but when you're thinking in terms of i wish i had this money so that i could do this thing versus I'm, I'm excited that I get to joyfully give to the church, right? So when when I got my raise, when I received a promotion a year and a half ago, I was I was actually was brought to tears when I I thought about the, the amount of increase I was getting, because at that point in our church's life, we were really struggling financially. And so the first thought that came to mind was, this is a way that I can support the church even more than I am now. And, and I'm not saying that to like tell... Tout- Tout myself in that, like that was the Holy Spirit giving me Christ's perspective. I think that He was giving me the mind of Christ, as Paul talks about in uh, First Corinthians, and and that's really where we need to get. When you see that person who is uh, just drives you crazy because they're they're frustrating and annoying, and they 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 push on you all your buttons, and you think how can I really serve this person? How can I reflect right. Christ to this person? How can I love this person as my neighbor in a way that makes it so they see the goodness of God executed through me? That's where I think we have to get as Christians. It's not enough to just, and this goes to the whole idea that the law and o- obedience to the law is an internal reality before it can ever be right, an, external, exactly. an external reality. Is, is I have to have the right attitude about how I'm reacting to my neighbor, whether that is in the midst of a riot Right. I I am blessed, and I you, you know I, th- I haven't heard about any rioting in your area either, at least super close to you. But I'm blessed that I live in an area where I have not had to face the dangers of the unrest that's going on in our right. in our world right now. But if my first thought when I think about rioting is how can I protect myself just for the sake of protecting myself, and it's not about how can I serve my neighbors well, and, and that may be. Protecting myself, right? My wife is my closest neighbor, right? So I have to think about those things. And I am commanded to preserve my own life. This is a, a big complex puzzle of of laws and regulations and restrictions and and prohibitions and directions and commands and precepts. All of these things play together. But if my thought is not about how do I honor God by obedience to his commands in loving my neighbor, then then we're already missed the point before we even started.
0: And I think part of what we're saying in this is is not that, of course, neither you nor I get this right all the time or even close to all the time. However, what I'm kind of asking for, I think, and I'm just speaking to myself, I guess, at the end of the day here, is that these circumstances in particular have given me a little bit more clarity of focus in realizing that I need to take these times of inconvenience where I sense that inconvenience and immediately use that as almost like a raw material toward honoring the sanctification that God's doing in my life. In other words, like we need to be the kind of people that like it would be great if reformed christians but christians in general were known to be the kind of people that when they sensed in their own lives that they were drawn toward rejecting something out of mere inconvenience that that would be the very thing that would drive them in that moment to submission to God in prayer that he would change how we feel about that thing and that over time we developed the kind of memory that you're talking about there that the kind of spirit-led and directed emotional response that would now be in line with the mind of Christ, because I think uh, for a lot of Christians, and again, I just want to, this is a family discussion. I think for reformed people in particular, that we have the sense that like, you know, superficial love expects like an immediate payoff. It wants to be appreciated and affirmed. It wants to be championed for the efforts it makes. And it grows really tired when the recognition is slow in coming. But active love labors and perseveres even when it is not reciprocated. Yeah. And I've said this before, and I'm gonna tie it to what you just said. Genuine love or, or love apart from a willingness to be inconvenienced is just not genuine. Yeah. And Christ-like love does not fluctuate depending on the return on investment. Those statements are like just as condemning to me probably as to anybody else that's listening. And so I think if we can start to actually ask that the Lord would bring to our mind these inconveniences where we're not living the appropriate ethic under the Ten Commandments, and then that we can be the kind of people that are willing to listen to His voice, so to speak, that I wonder what our culture would look like. I wonder what our own lives would look like but we've got to be like committed to that. Like there's no sense getting online and sharing like tons of opinions about how you want to change the world. If we're not willing to do this very thing, which God has first given to us as a rule yeah. of law, which is impounded in the 10 commandments.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny that you, you talk about love that will not suffer an inconvenience is not true love. And I really, really like Taco Bell. Like I really <laughs> okay. like Taco Bell.
0: Okay.
1: Don't worry. I'm bringing it back around. And, no, that's,
0: and ep- listen, that's fine by
1: itself. Ever since this whole COVID thing has started, I haven't been able to get Taco Bell. Like I just haven't. The Taco Bell close to us closed for a while, and, and then I like I didn't feel super safe going to Taco Bell because the, the people who work there, I've experienced, are not always careful about like washing their hands. And so I, I just I've been very weary. And finally I felt like, okay, things are calming down enough that I can get Taco Bell. And every week, when I before I go grocery shopping, I say to Ashley, I say, You know, I really miss Taco Bell. I think I'm going to stop and get Taco Bell before I do the grocery shopping tonight. And then I get there and the line is too long. And I go, eh, never mind. (laughs) Right? And and like that's that's what I think is going on in the lives of many Christians right now. Right? We love the concept of loving our neighbor. We love the idea. We recognize that it's necessary. And then we get there and the proverbial line is too long. And we go, eh, maybe next time. Maybe I'll get it next week. Maybe I'll love my neighbor next week. Because the line is too long. The cost is too high. Right. And so, so that's where I think we need to get is if I really, truly loved Taco Bell and I I, like, I really loved Taco Bell and it was the most important thing to me. It would not matter how long that line is. I would sit in that line until I got my Taco Bell. But my love for Taco Bell is quantifiable in terms of three or four cars in the drive-thru. <laughs> like, like, honestly, if I pull up and there's more than three or four cars, I just go and get McDonald's and I do my grocery shopping, right? And not because I love McDonald's more. It's just I, I don't want to wait for the Taco Bell. And right. so we have to think about that. When it comes to loving our neighbor, the only line that should be too long is one that causes us to sin, right? right. The only time that that taking an action that, that could be described as loving our neighbor well is not worth doing is if somehow that loving our neighbor causes us to sin. Now, I don't, th- actu- I don't actually think that there could ever be a time where those two things are truly at odds. It might be hard to understand how they're not. And and so I get that. Like we have to make decisions in the moment. But if if you ever come to a situation and you say, the cost of loving my neighbor is too high, that cost better be disobedience to God or you're just straight out sinning.
0: Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, so the whole point of this conversation was not just to say that I had any answers, but it was, I think this is something that's worth thinking about, especially right now. It's always worth pondering and ruminating on. Yeah. But I think that it's easy for us, especially as people who are so, we want to be disciplined at least in studying the scriptures and understanding God. And we've spoken so much about that. And sometimes when we record, we have a conversation and it's you and I trying to sort out and work out our salvation by the power of the Holy spirit. And I kind of see that as this is one of these times. Yeah. Um, and, and my great, one of my greatest fears is from another line. And I'll, I'll just end with this. It's, it's another line from Pilgrim's progress. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot with respect to all the benefits, all of the opportunities that we have in our own culture to study and to read the scriptures and to again, interact online and to have grand debates, all of which are profitable and fruitful in their own right. And yet I keep coming back being haunted by this phrase from John Bunyan in Program's Progress, where he says, where Christian says, it is said that in some countries, trees will grow, but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. And I think as we go through difficult periods as a country, as people, as we process these things, if we shy away from them, if we shy away from the cost of walking through the water or through the fire, as it were, I get fearful that because we know a lot or I know a lot of stuff or maybe more because I had different opportunities or could just go online and read. All those things are good, but I don't want to be the kind of Christian that looks like really leafy green and it is bearing no fruit because I've had no winter in my life where I've really taken that encountered the cost, the severe exacting demand that the law requires, at least in the way in which it's manifested in loving the neighbor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're spot on, man. You're spot on.
0: I'm just saying, we're sorting it out. This is real people. There's no net on this podcast. Yeah, it's true. It's there just no us net. No zero prep.
1: If there was a net, we probably would not have spent like 20 minutes talking about how our Scott Clark's first name is, is most certainly Reginald.
0: Is there any chance he'll hear this on his own?
1: Probably. And maybe, I mean, maybe, but probably not. I, I kind of hope not to be honest with you. I think we'll find out though. It probably won't take long. Like Wednesday morning, I'll get a message on Facebook. That's like, please, please change your podcast. You're
0: embarrassing yourself. <laughs> this change, we'll have to. So expect that next week, we'll have to retract what we said here and bring a like formal apology. Against, yeah, exactly. Yeah, all the
1: Reginald talk. That's true. Well, Jesse, thanks for bringing up this topic. I do think it's timely and it's important. And and. You know, it is times like this where we are confronted with such a dire need to love our neighbors. That is, it's right and good to think about what that means. I think in, in good times, it's easy to overlook that this is necessary and we can kind of just right. skate by. But right now in our world, like the world needs us to love our neighbors. That The world needs us to love our neighbors because they need us to love our neighbors. Like it, it's just a real actual need out there. And the command to love our neighbors is not the gospel right? Yes, exactly.
0: the gospel
1: and the reality of what the gospel does in our lives and does to us should necessarily cause us not just to love our neighbors, but to love loving our neighbors in, in like the most robust, healthy
0: way. Yeah, that's well said. Beautiful.
1: All right, Jesse. Well, until next time. When we apologize to Reginald Scott Clark for <laughs> changing his name on him, wouldn't it be funny if he decided if he decided that that was actually such an awesome first name that he like legally changed his name to Reginald?
0: Yeah, I mean, we, yeah. if we could take the claim to that, I would. I'd say we're done and we've arrived.
1: We'd be like the top fifty naming podcast in the country. <laughs> There's got to be a convention for that. Well, Jesse. Until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Ah.